Father, as we take up your word again, and we consider these things that uh, surround us, we pray, Lord, for wisdom and discretion and for the wise application of them to our hearts by your Spirit. Lord, we pray that we may have a realistic view of the world in which we live, that we might be faithful to you in the midst of it, that we might be good warriors for the Lord Jesus Christ, that we might be salt and light, that, Lord, we might know how to show love. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been laying down some basic biblical principles about Satan and demonic activity in these afternoon messages uh, for the last two weeks. And in doing so, we've established that the vast majority of those professing to be evangelical Christians here in the U.S. do not believe that Satan is a real personal being, and therefore they don't believe that there is any sort of defined conspiracy of evil in the world. Those two things go together. These convictions are held contrary, of course, to the clear teachings of the Word of God, and uh, our proof of that is really found in the, the first two sermons on this subject, and I'm not going to go over all that again uh, today. We also touched on the depths of Satan's mouse and the lengths that demonic forces will go to in order to foster um, confusion and sorrow and wickedness and death. We stated that Satan gleefully, intentionally, and wantonly pulled all of mankind down into ruin. Mankind was purposefully and, and cruelly attacked by Satan, who took one who was holy, happy, and wise, Adam, the federal head of all mankind, and reducing him by temptation, uh, and all men and women to a state of sinfulness, misery, and willful stupidity. So we looked at there the, the, the depth uh, of the matter. The breadth is also somewhat uh, uh, breathtaking, I guess I would say. We looked at the breadth of this activity last week. We demonstrated that the influence of the occult can be really traced through all the different aspects of human society, uh, stating that the work and influence of Satan, his demons, and those who serve him uh, could be found in the Garden of Eden and in the Garden of Gethsemane. It can be found in the palace of kings and in a herd of swine. It is found among poor maniacs haunting the graveyards among, and among the beggars of the, on the temple steps and even in the synagogues. These forces are found harassing the sick and the weak and troubling the strong and the healthy. They're found among the disciples and we find demonic activity among the Pharisees as well. They oppress the poor and they tempt the rich. They bring misery upon young, old, male, and female. So there's a great breadth to their activity as well as depth. And we also emphasized uh, in the messages so far the danger of limiting, limiting in our minds or expectations 
the arenas of their activities. The influence of the occult stretches far and, and wide. Um, and it's not just limited to uh, tarot cards or Ouija boards or seances. It goes way beyond that. We consider briefly the influence of the occult in the worlds of politics and education and art and music uh, last week. And for that information, I, I direct you to last week's afternoon sermon. Today I want to say a word about science and the occult because many would consider this probably the last place that you would expect to find any connection, especially in modern times. But that would be a mistaken notion. It's important that we keep our goal in mind here, and so before we get into that, I want to just reiterate that. Um, ultimately, we're going to speak to the plague of drugs that grips our society and others, um, the way that it has such a stronghold on people today. There's a certain naive attitude toward this problem that doesn't take into account any connection between the drug culture and the occult. And it's so strange because those two are historically and biblically tied together. And, and the, fact, the fact of their being tied together is well established historically and biblically. We closed last week's message with a, a chilling report from the FBI documenting that reality. But before we push on in establishing that issue, we want to see if there's any connection between modern science and the occult. Is there any, any kind of activity going on there? And I say this with tongue-in-cheek. I say it with tongue-in-cheek because there is so much evidence linking modern science to the occult that volumes have been written on the subject and are being written on the subject. It's not something that you have to go to obscure lengths to find. There are books being produced and being offered for sale right now on Amazon dealing with this subject. Not that long ago, the chief thinker in the development of the theory of evolution and natural selection was a dedicated follower of the occult. Now, contrary to popular belief, that was not Charles Darwin. But the man whose theories and whose ideas Darwin popularized in his book. His name was Alfred R. Russell. And Darwin used Russell's writings to inform on the origin of the species. Um, after the two had developed a friendship that lasted the rest of Darwin's life, Darwin took his ideas about uh, that idea of natural selection and he incorporated them in his book, The Origin of the Species. Um, it was Russell um, who was the real mind behind that idea and that concept and who developed it. And Russell, one biographer writes, didn't just attend seances and engage with supposed paranormal phenomena. He was an advocate of spiritualism 
a full-on convert who wrote about the subject. So he was deeply involved in the occult, even to the embarrassment of Darwin. At times, Darwin asked him to, to kind of cool it on his uh, writings about the occult and his activity with the occult, and Russell refused to do it and continued with it. But let, let's not just go to the past. Let's limit ourselves a little bit and look at a, a publication from one of the most prestigious scientific institutions in the world, MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. The following thoughts are from an article written by Laura Tripaldi. She's a PhD student in materials science and nanotechnology at a university in Italy. And her work was just recently published by the MIT Press Reader. And she writes this. I have always been fascinated by the occult origins of chemistry. So here she is, she's a PhD in nanotechnology. And what has always fascinated her? The occult and the impact it had on the beginnings of chemistry. I think that although they are not always evident, contemporary chemistry still bears these ancient influences within it. Not everybody sees it, not everybody's aware of it, but I think those occult origins in the development of chemistry, they're still present in chemistry today. The idea so dear to alchemists of a continuity between the inorganic and the organic world, between dead and living matter, was the basis for the development of modern chemistry and still influences many of our technologies today. But in the ancient alchemical legends, I believe we also find symbolic confirmation of the idea that in chemical synthesis, inorganic matter and human beings exert an influence upon one another, forging a fruitful alliance that makes it possible to produce something completely new. Now, we don't have time to just let that sink in a little bit, <laughs> but if you just think about it for a moment, she's saying, I think there's something there between the connection with chemistry and as it is, we know it today, and these old forces, these old occult forces that can produce something new. And I don't know if you realize what she's talking about, but what she's talking about is artificial life. Not artificial intelligence, but artificial life. That we can grow flesh, we can make, we can make flesh grow in, in the laboratory, but we can't give it life. But if we can find a way to tap into these occult powers and forces, we will be able to then extend to that flesh that we produce some form of life, something new, something never seen before. We will be able to create like God creates life. That's what she's talking about. And that's where they're going. And, of course, they explain all this by saying that we want to do this 
without all that bugaboo stuff about the devil and demons and, and all that stuff. We want to just get the powers cleansed of any of that old superstitious influence. As if it were possible to do that and there were such a thing. And, of course, it's not. It's not. You can't, you can't do that. It is an arrogant and fantastic dream. This concept is also found throughout modern science of being able to tap into the occult, avoid the, the dark side of it, and just tap into the power. Hugh Ross, with whom I differ on, on many things theological, talks about uh, this influence in the world of astrophysics and other scientific disciplines. And he bears witness to being present in rooms full of scientists uh, back in the old Soviet Union uh, who were trying to develop occult powers into weapons. And they were trying to do that with the same idea. We're just going to get our hands on the power. Um, we know that power is there. We just have to get rid of the superstitious side of it that involves demons and so on. And we're just going to concentrate on getting our hands on the power and we'll be able to do things that others can't do. And he talked about those scientists being plagued by spiritual oppression and demonic influences. He says that he walked into an auditorium of scientists in the Soviet Union who were working on that. And when he walked in, being a Christian, some of those scientists were back in the back, whimpering in the corners, uh, balled up like, um, like infants, uh, crying and, and looking to be delivered um, from the oppression of this presence of someone who knew Christ. And here they were dabbling in these things, thinking we can draw out the force and the power, but not be impacted by these superstitious ideas of demonic activity and so on. But when they were then brought to bear with someone who was representing uh, Christ in that context, um, the demonic forces made their presence known. Among some serious scientists like Ross, uh, Cult activity has been and is the only plausible ex explanation for confirmed UFO sightings and experiences for decades. That's, what, that's the way they understand. It's the only way that they can explain it. It has to be something happening from another realm. It can't be because from our universe because of the physics involved. The way these things move and operate, they can't do that under the laws of physics. So they must be from somewhere else. The connection between these scientific disciplines is no secret. And you can find more than you could ever have time to read on this subject. That is the connection between modern science and the occult. Um, there's just so much online. And I'm not talking about, you know, um, tinfoil hat Bob, who uh, is, uh, you know, in his basement typing on his computer. I'm talking about scientific journals that take up this topic and deal with it, and, and uh, bloggers of various sorts. The University of Indiana has a course offering in its College of Arts and Sciences 
the Department of History and Philosophy of Science and Medicine called the Occult in Western Civilization. And, of course, seeing that as a, as a course in, as a matter of history and just understanding history, you could understand it. But there's something more to that class. Look at the course description. I think you have it there in your notes. The course description says, the occult is a theme that is deeply ingrained in the history of Western civilization from antiquity to the present. From antiquity to the present. We're not just looking back in this course, the science course. We're not just looking back on how the occult influenced Western society in the past. We're looking at the influence it has on society, up, on, on science up to right now. Segments of our society have laid claim to an esoteric wisdom that could only be revealed to those who were worthy of its exercise. This course will deal with the primary members of the occult sciences, alchemy, magic, and astrology, from their roots in antiquity up to the present. We will examine the metamorphosis of the occult sciences over time in order to examine their relationship to one another and to other cultural endeavors. Now, I could go on for a long time describing this stuff. There's plenty out there. But that's not our real purpose here. But I hope that by doing this, by merely illustrating uh, these facts briefly, you can see the breadth of occult and demonic activity. And as I said earlier, it's breathtaking. And that brings us to the point of our study. We're attempting to cover the following topics. The breadth of the work of Satan, his servants, and his slaves, and we've done that now. The undeniable and historic connection between drugs and the true occult. And that's what we're going to try to deal with a little bit today and next week. The full nature of the danger of drug usage. And the one and only remedy, lastly. So with a few minutes remaining to us, I want to begin dealing with the undeniable and historic connection between drugs and the true occult. And when I say the true occult, what I mean is not the occult that is limited to and confined to um, seances and, and Satan worship and that sort of thing, but the influence it has broadly throughout our society in, in so many different uh, disciplines. If one traces the use of mind-altering drugs in the Hindu world, where it's a common practice, uh, especially among uh, those who are involved in the Hindu religion, it's, it's a common part of the worship. If you trace that, that practice historically, it will take you back to the Middle East. And eventually it will take you into the temples of Baal. If you honestly trace it historically, that's the route you're going to be taken on. Through the history of India, back into the Middle East, through the history of the Middle East, and back to the days of Baal. The connection is undeniable. In fact, the connection between drugs and occult worship is, in every culture, is obvious. But in, in that course, you can find it. In that, following that course, I should say, you can see it clearly. It may even help one, I think, realizing that 
to understand some of the most violent and crude practices that were observed in pagan cultures. You wonder sometimes, how did people do the things that they did? Or why did they do them? And a lot of that relates to the use of mind-altering drugs in those worship activities. Things like the sacrifices of children to an idol. Who could do that? Why would someone do that? Why would you take your infant child and throw them on a grate in front of a statue that looks like a bull? Why would you do that? A reality that's not often referenced is that drugged women duped into engaging in fertility rites in order to stir up bail to action often found themselves when they came to themselves with child. Those children born out of drug-induced promiscuity would naturally end up on the altars of Moloch. We get the picture that it's some woman who's sacrificing her dear little child that she's had with her husband. But that wasn't often what was going on. What was going on is what I've just described. And I don't want to go over it again because I know we have delicate ears here with us. But we have to face these things. This is the reality of, of, of what was going on. And we have to understand it. Because I think it requires very little imagination to carry that image to any college campus and the convenient location of the abortion mill to that campus. We had two abortion mills in Knoxville in Tennessee, small town, relatively, small area. They were both within walking distance of the dormitories of the University of Tennessee. Why? Well, the reason is obvious. And you can see, I think, the connection without me having to dwell on it. The connection between drugs and Baal worship, as I mentioned, is easily traced. Writing more than 100 years ago, a New York doctor who was concerned with um, self-drugging wrote in a medical journal, and this is how he put his concern. It is therefore, he said, appalling to see how man should neglect and violate the laws of nature and turn to the worship of Baal by self-drugging. The the connection was clear in his mind that this is a return to the worship of Baal where people self-drugged and uh, that's the way they lived. Drugs, of course, also played a vital part in Egyptian occult worship. Recent research has revealed the presence of strong mind-altering drugs in ritual drinks consumed in the worship of the Egyptian god Bess. And some cities in Egypt are documented as having exported mind-altering drugs around the world for the purpose of occult worship use. 
That's why they were being exported. That was their business. They were the cartels of the, the ancient age, sending out drugs for people to use in the worship that was associated with the occult. That mind-altering drugs have been used as a gateway to the dark world of demonic influence, control, and ruin throughout history is a fact, beloved, that's so evident that it can't be denied by any serious person. You just cannot deny it. You have to deny the testimony of history, the obvious testimony of history, to deny that fact, that drugs have been used as a gateway to the dark world of demonic influence, control, and ruin. I personally dealt with believers who years after giving up their drug usage have found themselves still dealing with the consequences, including terribly frightening nightmares and temptations of self-harm. My own experience, my own limited experience with such things leaves me astounded when I hear people try to portray the use of mind-altering substances as an innocent recreation. People who contend that haven't gotten a call in the middle of the night to go out to someone's house who's utterly out of control and you have to try to help them because they're a fellow believer now and they have abandoned their drug usage for years but they're still getting results from that experience in their bodies and in their lives it's a, a sobering thing the occult connection renders such claims naive I think at best and perhaps fatal at worst So we come to the Bible, and what does the Bible say about this then? If this is such a terrible thing and such an obvious thing, um, the claim is often made the Bible doesn't say anything about drugs or their use, and therefore it doesn't have an opinion on the subject. But that's not honest or accurate. And to be able to hold that position, you have to tiptoe around certain passages And you have to hold a very delicate view of things. And by that I mean you have to be very careful to try to avoid both the obvious and what is implied in order to make that claim. So let me give you an example here in the few minutes we have left. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 10 and verse 11. Solomon is making a statement that doesn't seem to have anything to do directly with drugs. He says there, if the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. That's the ESV version. The King James translation says, surely the serpent will bite without enchantment, and a babbler is no better. Now, most of you, I guess, have seen snake charmers, as they're called, maybe not face-to-face, but you've seen pictures of them and seen, seen it being done. And they're, the hand, they're handling charmed snakes. 
And it's a practice that's thousands of years old. But what does it mean to charm a snake? It's meant to imply that the charmer hypnotizes his snake with the playing of his pipe and the motion of it. By playing and doing that, he hypnotizes the snake. I'm sure that many of you know that the snake is not hearing the pipe because it doesn't have the ability to hear. So that whole idea is just imaginary in people's minds. He's not being, not the music's not putting him, the snake, in a trance. And the motion may capture the snake's attention, but he's not mesmerized by it. He's following the motion to determine when it's best to strike. He's not being dumb, made dumb by it or, or being sent into a stupor by it. Now, there are tricks that are employed, like sewing up the mouth or always playing just outside the known striking distance, and some, some do it that way. But since ancient times, charming snakes involved drugging them and putting them in a stupor. This means of enchanting the snake would have been known to a man like Solomon. And he obviously is not referring here to the pretend hypnotizing of the snake. He's not saying that if you pretend to hypnotize a snake, it'll be hypnotized. Does that make any sense? Let me say it again. If you pretend to hypnotize a snake, you'll hypnotize him? If I pretend to hypnotize Tyler, is he hypnotized? No, because we're just pretending, right? So, and that's what the hypnotizing is for the snake charmer. It's just pretense. So Solomon's not talking about that. He's not talking about the snake charmer holding some sort of mental sway over the mind of the serpent. He's talking about a serpent that's been drugged. If it's not drugged, then it's dangerous. You've got to drug it first to make it docile so that you can do what you want with it. That's the truth of the matter. So enchantment involves a wide range of occult activities. And among them, a fact well-known and documented, was the concocting and employment of mind-altering drugs for various purposes. That's what enchanters did. That's what an enchanter is. Someone who uses mind-altering drugs, among other things, to bring about what they want, what they're seeking to pursue. Now all we need to do is to see what the scripture says about both the practice and the practitioners of enchantments. And the practice of using drugs and spells to alter behavior or to harm enemies. And under the law of Moses, those who practiced concocting and making mind-altering potions and casting spells... And doing that, under the law of Moses, they were not, those who practiced that, 
we're not supposed to be allowed to live. Because that's what a witch was. Someone who used mind-altering drugs in order to cast spells and so on. In Exodus twenty-two eighteen, it says, You shall not suffer a witch or an enchanter or a charmer to live. Now, that seems like rather extreme punishment for men and women who are mixing up drugs so people could go tripping. That's all they were doing. Invariably, however, the practice was associated with the occult, the drugs serving as a gateway to enchantment and into the dark spiritual world. I'm out of time, and uh, I don't want to overpress you, but <clears throat> I'm going to skip the theophysist. Um, you can read his uh, assessment there uh, in the notes. If you don't have the notes, I can, I can get them for you. Um, and the interesting thing is that theosophy recognizes that this is the purpose of drugs, and it opposes the use of drugs. They want to get into the occult another way, through meditation. That they recognized that drugs is the way in. The Jews were instructed in no uncertain times that those who dabbled in mind-altering drugs and other practices involving the occult were not to be tolerated. And we'll pick this up next week. And I just want to just close by touching once again on another FBI report. This one was from 1992, so it's a bit dated. But um, it was put together dealing with stoners, drugs, demons, and delinquency. And the stoners is a particular group of Hispanic adolescent males who were committing crimes in Los Angeles. The author of this paper studied a group, the stoners in Los Angeles, who exhibited an interest in witchcraft and the occult and called themselves stoners, a name referring to heavy drug abuse. The use of drugs or alcohol made it easier for stoners to become involved in and accept the tenets of Satanism. An empirical evaluation of stoners' values and attitudes showed that they did not fit the basic profile of a traditional gang. Stoners were nonconventional, relatively violent, and destructive in nature and turned to the occult and Satanism because these philosophies advocate hedonism or hedonistic self-centered behavior. I hope you can stick with me in this um, because there is a link here uh, that is much more insidious that is involved in the use of drugs and what's going on in our world today. But at this point, I think the question is, why would someone who is told by God not to get drunk with wine for that's debauchery, but to be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, why would someone under that command want to spend part of his or her time with the pastime of the followers of Baal? Where is the agreement there? Where is the connection there? Whether that's your intention or not, why would you want to do that when this is what 
you're to spend your time doing according to the command of Christ. And that's the thing that stands before us. But we're going to move on in this next week. Uh, I hope you can bear with me in that and stick with me as we continue to talk about this. Let's pray. Father, bless these uh, things to our hearts. Lord, they are disturbing, and yet um, they're at the same time uh, a real part of the world in which we live. And when we are looking at what we're dealing with, we have to face it for what it is so that we can deal with it realistically. We know a brother or sister stumbling in such things. Lord, how can we lift them up and pray for them as we ought unless we understand the danger that they're involved in? We can't come with a proper earnestness or urgency unless we understand this. So we pray, Father, that you'll help us to continue to understand how these things relate to one another and eventually be able to see what is the motive behind all this. What does the enemy propose? What is his design in bringing us into a stupor, a drug-induced stupor? We pray, Father, that uh, you'll bless us as we consider these things for Christ's sake. In whose name we pray. Amen.